Warning. This episode of Seriously Wrong is the culmination of an ancient spiritual tradition that stretches back through the millennia. By mirroring the common threads of all human experience, by listening to this episode, you, me, us, we will triumph against evil and bring justice and spontaneity to the universe. Look, I just don't want to be tickled in my own office, okay? Yeah, tickle me in the street if you have to. This is my office. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Seriously Wrong Podcast. My name is Sean Villiers. And my name is Aaron Moritz. Thank you for joining us today for another wonderful audio adventure. Deep, deep, deep. Deep what? Deep in, deep in that good stuff. <laughs> we always go deep and we always stay afloat. So it's, it's the balance that we always strike. Mm-hmm. And we're, we're always reaching dizzying new heights. Yeah, I noticed that too. As we dig deeper and deeper. <laughs> and we never mix metaphors. It's like, it's, I don't know how we do it. It's Sometimes great. we stir metaphors <laughs> or beat metaphors. Caress them, Caress massage them, them. Mm-hmm. massage them into uh, like into a soft putty. At that point, um, yeah. Welcome to the show. <laughs> welcome to the show. Yeah. I'm wrong. You're wrong. She's wrong. He's wrong. I'm wrong. You're wrong. She's wrong. He's wrong. We're wrong. So we're going to do a listener call question answer episode this week. We Yeah, we got a, a, a little question on our answering machine on our website. If you go to the contact form, there's a place where you can record a message and send it to us. And uh, yeah, we got a great question. So we're going to do, <laughs> let's, let's do that. a little eparoo. <laughs> eparoonie dooney, doobly doo. Hi, wrong boys. Love you guys. Love the show. Really excited for the 10,000 years of world peace. I was wondering if you could uh, comment on this discussion that uh, me and some of my friends keep going back to, which is whether or not mythology or myth has a place in you know the liberal revolution. Like Murray Bookchin was very against the use of myths and considered them irrational and uh, thought that we should you know strive for rationality. And some of my friends uh, think that that myth has a very strong place in uniting communities. Uh, there's like the the whole uh, Keck thing that that the alt right loonies have, and there's been you know people talking about at least half jokingly talking about having our own uh, myth. So I was wondering you know how, what you guys feel about whether we should only uh, be rational and realistic, or if there's uh, a place for, you know, having sort of irrational beliefs, even, you know, even if ironically. Well, first of all, thanks for your call, Ryan. Great question. Really interesting discussion. I guess the framing of myth versus rationality is something that I don't, it's not, it's not how I think of myth when I think of myths as like something that we need. But if your definition of myth is like believing silly, irrational, untrue things 
then it's probably not a good thing. I don't think <laughs> like, like the, the kind of atheist rationalist, like area of discourse that I used to be really involved in the myth just becomes sort of interchangeable with like, Oh, you're believing something that's not true. And yeah, I, I don't think that's beneficial. And I think that's kind of where Bookchin is coming at it from what's the Keck thing? Like I know the cult of Keck. I feel like I don't quite know what he means by it being a myth though. Do you know what? Oh yeah. Well, like within the kind of alt-right mysticism, Keck was like an Egyptian God and someone made the case of like tying together the Pepe meme and Donald Trump's candidacy and some coincidences from 4chan into this narrative about how basically like this ancient mythic goddess is helping the alt-right to to win battles right when won the election is keck actually an ancient god or that's just also part of the untrue things because like yeah. i thought it was an intentional mistyping of lol like they just took lol and changed it into keck for so, yeah that's that's part of the coincidence uh, right. because okay. yeah keck has been for a while a a way of saying lol but in the ancient Egyptian, uh, Ogdoid, <laughs> in an ancient Egyptian mythology, Kek was the deification of the concept of primordial darkness. That was neither male or female, but also kind of funny, I think, is that it's, it could also be translated as Kuk, K-U-K. Mm -hmm. oh, um, okay. Yeah, so when that's explained to me, like, I'm pretty sure most of the alt-right doesn't literally believe that this ancient god is helping them, but it is a story that they're using to draw strength from, almost, it seems like. You 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 tell the story amongst yourselves, and even though, you, you know, it's probably not literally true, like, Ryan mentioned creating unity within a community, and I think that's definitely a big part of it, but it's also that... By telling stories about how, say, the gods are conspiring to help you, you feel stronger. You feel like more of a hero. You feel like you can go out into the world and take things on and uh, accomplish what you need to accomplish. And I think that's what the function of myth is. The function of myth is telling stories that help you live your life in a way that is beneficial for you and for hopefully everyone and <laughs> or most people yeah and so even though the, the the pepe keck joke is obviously kind of silly and and most people don't literally believe that there's a multi-gendered ancient egyptian frog god who has infiltrated 4chan and has helped donald trump win the presidency floating that idea and having that idea around that's something that people are saying in an ironic way or in a serious way gives a group continuity that is beneficial for, for that. And it's like an insider, like for me to say praise Keck to someone who's like within this, this realm, they're going to be like, Oh, this guy's on my side. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they literally think that there's a frog God who's controlling 4chan. Okay. There's probably definitely some people who actually believe that. <laughs> oh, 100%. <laughs> Dude, if you told me six months ago that flat earth was going to be a thing, like, because like flat earth is like, if you were joking, if you were making a joke about how the internet isn't a reliable source of information, like flat earth would be one of the go-to jokes. But like, 
I, maybe it's just that I've been, I kind of seek it out, but I've argued with people who really think this. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of our groups now has a resident flat earther who <laughs> has endless links, endless videos, endless arguments. Like he's, he, he knows it all. And he's either the most dedicated troll in the world or just, you know, really believes this. He found all the information. And <laughs> so he posted a meme recently that said, it's very funny how everyone who studies flat earth becomes a flat earther. Just like, I don't know if that's true, but yeah, like the, what the Keck myth is doing is allowing the people on the alt-right to tell like a hero story about themselves and how they're these underdogs and they're fighting back against the establishment with Pepe the frog. And like, they have this ancient God on their side and like, it's something that gives you like an orientation and a direction to, to head towards. And, uh, sense of purpose and a sense of meaning in what they're doing yeah and the, and the community aspect to it like you know the original star wars trilogy approaches the realm of mythology in that it's got these moral lessons these identifiable characters and that a community is around it a community has shared experiences of this story and it's still powerful as a myth even though star wars fans don't literally think that a long time ago in a galaxy far away, this literally happened. In fact, I think no Star Wars fans think that. <laughs> yeah, it's probably pretty close to zero, if not zero. Correct me if I'm wrong. I would love to see evidence to the contrary. That would be an interesting <laughs> WordPress, more so than the truth about Pepe the Frog or WordPress. Or the Flat Earth WordPresses. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I want to see the Star Wars is actually real uh, WordPress. Star Wars is actually real.wordpress.com. As for the... the the Bookchin question, I asked a friend of mine who is more into Bookchin than I am about it. And just to be clear that I was going to represent his ideas uh, properly. But in Bookchin's conception of the progress of history, myths are, are like pre-enlightenment, pre-rationality ideas for group cohesion um, in the absence of these higher forms of reason that we've achieved since then. And he's critical of the idea of, of creating myths. I just think he doesn't think about myths in the same way that I think about myths. Because throughout the article, he was tearing into nihilism and directionlessness and postmodernism is the words he was using. And from my perspective, Bookchin loves myths. Like he loves the myth of the Athenian polis and direct face-to-face -face democracy and like telling these stories about progress and he's talking about the potential of human freedom and increasing human freedom and all these things are stories that he is telling about history and about the world that are are much more believable than ancient cat god pepe the frog but no less mythological in the sense that they give us direction point us where we want to go help us to discern right from wrong like we want to increase freedom. Humanism is good. People are worthwhile. It's <laughs> like these these are these are values that are encoded in the stories that Bookchin is telling about history and in about the direction that society should head in. And so his his philosophy and his ideas are mythological in the sense that I think myths are good and useful things. Yeah, and I, and I feel like even in an, in another level like you and I and some others who have been involved in the project of helping to popularize his writings, we've mythologized him in a sense as like this 
like leadership character who mm. had this this vision of the world and in that sense like living according to our ideas of bookchin is mythological in itself as people who uh, enjoy his writing or enjoy the bulk of his ideas. So I think in my mythology of Bookchin, this is a, a dedicated, you know, uh, not just a theorist, but an activist. He, he worked a large part of his life to try to actualize a higher form of society that he believed very sincerely in. He became kind of cynical and, and hardened to certain ideas and started feeling that there was this radical subjectivity that was taking over politics and in a negative way and that he felt like we were experiencing a regression from a rational view of society into like a pre-rational mythic view of society and that's how he conceptualized it and so Bookchin started kind of lashing out at people polemically and it's he's not the only person in history to be polemical and write these like scathing insults of other people yeah. but I think the story of Bookchin when I think of I mean, and I love Bookchin's ideas in itself, but one of my fascinations with Bookchin is the story of Bookchin, this, uh, you know, darling theorist and one of the founders of the ecology movement who ended up by the end of his life being considered kind of an old crank. And what caused that transition was his dedication to tearing into people he disagreed <laughs> with, which made him a lot of enemies. And when I first started getting into Bookchin, I was bringing out a little more of my polemical side and I started noticing that when you're polemical, people don't listen to you hmm. and actually they start to dislike you. Unless they agree with you, then they fucking start to love you. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, but, but even then, of the people who agree with you, some of your best potential allies are going to be like, well, did you really need to yeah. do that? <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Yeah. <laughs> so I see Bookshin as a mythological figure that is a lesson about being very clear about not just the substance of what you're communicating, but how you're communicating it. And so my big lesson that I've taken away from Bookshin is yelling at people doesn't start mass movements. Calling people idiots for disagreeing with you <laughs> doesn't start mass movements. And that's like the lesson that I take away from it. That's my... the moral of the Bookchin story. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also got a lot of other great morals along the way. Like, for example, human beings are a part of nature, but we're distinct from nature. Uh, humans carry this great, amazing potentiality to reach higher levels of uh, morality and rationality. And it's our, it's our job as human beings to bring out higher levels of rationality and morality in one another. But I just think that polemics that is really really ripping into people who disagree with you is uh that's actually not how you actualize other people's rationality that's not how you actualize morality in other people so yeah in, in summary bookshin conceived of myth as pre-rational and i disagree with him i've got a more joseph campbell idea of myth mm -hmm. than him but in himself Bookchin is a mythological figure and there's a story to take away from it as the community that we are when we talk about Bookchin and we understand his role in society and history. Ironically, he himself is a mythological figure. It's just hearing cringing and hearing you say that. <laughs> Beth, it is so good to see you. Uh, hey girl. Hey girl. Hey having Sally. over for a mom's night, a couple of drinks. Uh, uh, you know, I need it. I need it i can tell honey you got some bags under your eyes just kidding i'm just being a bitch i'm sorry you got some bags you need no, some makeup I just I kidding i do i I'm do you, you're right you're right no I, mean, I was just being a bitch i haven't gotten any sleep i've been up all night on the internet reading i'm just beside myself little willie you know you talking about my ex <laughs> <laughs> oh girl oh girl uh no 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 little willie you know 
he just turned 12 and his dad showed him the Star Wars, like all these, these Star Wars movies. I don't even know. People shooting lasers at each other, whatever. But mm-hmm. the darndest thing I is... I saw the commercial and I saw they had a special cup at KFC. Anyway, so, sorry, what? The darndest thing, he thinks it's real. And whatever I say to him, I can't convince him otherwise. I said, no, Willie, it doesn't matter. Galaxy long time ago, far, far ago, it doesn't matter. This did not happen. This is just a story, a special effects. And didn't you tell him like it's like... It's like just a moral story like to take lessons from, but like it's yeah, not literally true. No, it's I, like uh, produced by uh, like a movie studio. Yeah, exactly. And like he gets it with every other movie. It's fine. He understands the concepts of movies. He knows Spider-Man doesn't exist, but for whatever reason, just literally thinks Star literally Wars thinks is true. Literally thinks Star Wars is true. That's wild. I'm like, are you fucking stupid kid? I mean, sorry, I'm just, you know, just between us girls, but I'm like, is this kid stupid? I, do I have a dumb kid? You know, you don't want to uh, think it, but yeah. like some kids, some kids I are have dumb. nightmares about that. About, yeah. Well, Realizing I mean, yours, yours is Chris, so smart. Chris, he, Chris yeah, is a, well, I mean. A little genius. He, he's a precocious kid for sure, but like he is uh, something else recently. He's mm. been on this little kick. He's always telling me to Google Murray Bookchin. I don't know where the fuck he got it. If some like graffiti what? or something. What is a bookchin? Uh, it's, I don't know. It's just some a book on a chin. Dead old, mm. dead old uh, ecologist or I don't. I don't mm. know. I mm. I haven't. I actually haven't Googled it yet. Don't tell him. But well, I mean, if he's telling you to all the time, it's like get yeah. off my back, kid. You know. It's like yeah, just say it nicely. Like you don't need to say it like a million times. Like mm. I am your mom. Yeah, where's the thanks for me changing your diapers for mm-hmm. three where's years? The, where's the thanks for me breastfeeding you for mm-hmm. all those years? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, now we're just going to Google things for you? Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah. like he keeps on calling things incoherent. Incoherent. Um, and he keeps on saying stuff like he's been he's been calling uh, his dad a lifestylist, uh, saying he's not, he's not serious about a, building a revolutionary movement. Hmm. Weird kid. I, just, hmm. I don't get it. I don't know if it's the kids at school or if he saw something uh, on the internet or it's one of the video games he's playing. And, and But it's just, he is out of control. And it's just like, I kind of wish he was dumb. I kind of wish he thought Star Wars is real because then at least it'd be manageable. I don't even understand what's happening with him. Yeah. It's I, freaking me out. Grass is always greener on the other side, but like when he's sp- saying he's a Jedi, he's saying that he's going to control things with the Force. You know, one time... I asked him to come and sit down for dinner. He held out his hand at me and like started squeezing his hand saying that I should be choking. He was trying to choke me from your, a distance. Your dumb son was trying to choke My you dumb with son was trying to choke Star me Wars with, magic. with magic. Yeah, like you saw the Pepsi commercial, right? Where I did, the, yeah. The, yeah. Where they used, they used <laughs> the, the uh, magic crunch in the hands. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. And Great like, commercial. I bought so much Pepsi after that. Yeah, and so I'm trying to tell him, you know, one, this doesn't work. Two, you don't choke your mother. Okay, you just don't choke your mother, even if you could. Yeah, that's such a hard lesson to teach because you want to be like, on one hand, don't choke me, but on the other hand, um, what you're doing is dumb and you seem <laughs> stupid. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I hate to say it, I hate to say it, but kid seems pretty dumb. Yeah, I mean, the worst I'm getting out of my son right now is just that he's. Uh, I think one time I said, "Oh yeah," he he's asking me about like religion. And I said, well, you know, people believe different things. That's okay. Like, I'm personally more spiritual. Hmm. But like, you know, some people are Christian. Some people are Hindu. Some people are Muslim. And that's okay. It's all, it, it's all. And he said, that's incoherent, mom. He said, uh, you're a postmodern nihilist. Wow. Sounds really intolerant. Yeah. I don't know what his deal is. He's just, he's just on this fucking weird thing. Kids. Kids, Kids these yeah. days. Yeah. Hmm. Fuck. 
Fuck them. Let's get drunk. Yeah, let's get drunk. <laughs> now you're speaking my language. Yeah. <laughs> Google getting drunk at mum time. Drunk war. Star drunks. Star Dr- drunks. Star drunks. Us. <laughs> oh, I drink too much. Mm. I drink too much. I really do. Awful. You're so bad. You're so bad. Oh, girl. you're bad. No, you're bad. That's why I love coming here. My <laughs> God, you're such a bitch. I love it. Yeah, so like the way I've been thinking about this recently, and I've been thinking about it quite a bit recently, actually, is that there's there's really no getting around myths in terms of like a sustaining narrative or a driving idea, uh, something that moves you. Because the way that people experience the world is as stories like like there's this quote i think i've said on the show before that the universe is made of stories and not atoms and i don't think that's like literally true it's definitely not true in a scientific sense but it's true in terms of how we experience the world and how we make sense of the world we look at it in terms of what happened what's going on now where are we among this and where do we want to go and that's how we conceive of like basically everything that we do. And that's the reason that we do anything. We have to tell ourselves stories about it. So like the idea of having a purely rational worldview doesn't make any sense to me because when you're talking about science and logic and rationality, you're talking about taking things apart and looking at them in order to see what is there. And when you're talking about mythology or like sustaining narratives, you're talking about taking all those parts and putting them back together in a story that makes sense and tells you what you want to do and where you want to go. Uh, so it's like, it's like the is ought distinction, like science and rationality and logic, they tell you what is, but not what you ought to do for that. You need values and like, you can list a whole bunch of values on a list and like, this is what I think is good. Sure. Yeah, that's great. But the way people really understand values, the way that you communicate them most effectively is by telling stories to people and showing people in situations using those values. Like that's, that's how you really drive them home to people. And so, yeah, myths and storytelling is just like part of our psyche and part of how we experience the world because we all have the same kinds of experiences. We have conflicts and things that we want to overcome and we have we experience jealousy and defeat and like triumph and joy and sorrow and all these things are human universals. They're part of the structure of our minds. And so learning how to deal with those things and what is the moral way to proceed in life when facing challenges is the realm of mythology. Um, I think in politics, I don't have the studies on hand, but I've got kind of an ongoing conversation with a friend of mine who is uh, studying political science about this type of stuff. So this refers to electoral politics. So I don't know if it's the same for everything, but I'm pretty sure that generally it's accepted that like if you're trying to get someone elected to office, it's not a good idea to say, here's a bullet point list of everything that is good and true and all the points why the bad guys are bad and all the points why we're good. It's much better and more effective to inspire people, bring them on board by building a narrative that connects what they care about to what, you know, what Barack Obama or you or, or the, the party cares about in a narrative and then bring them to action through that rather than saying, if you elect Barack Obama, he's going to cut taxes, this and this and this, we promise it's totally going to happen. It's much more effective to say like, basically, 
I really support Barack Obama because I was raised by a single mother and I saw day in and day out about how much these high taxes were negatively affecting us, how much the erosion of the social safety net negatively affects people. And and I just I'm ashamed to know that we live in a society where people are still on the streets uh, and not getting the help they need. And I know that you share these concerns with me. And now is the time for us to get together and work together to stop that from happening. Will you sign my petition? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's beautiful. <laughs> That's mythology making. Yeah, it's telling them a story that puts them in the role where they can be the hero and, and, and help you <laughs> get Barack Obama <laughs> elected. And then it's everything the f- will be great. <laughs> <laughs> we won. We slew the dragon, Mitt Romney. Um, so yeah so I think I'm just fascinated where you see people acting as if these things are dichotomous opposites that are in conflict when it's just so clear that they're two parts of a greater whole that like like it's it's very very important to have a solid understanding of politics to craft a good narrative that's going to bring people to action it's going to bring people to your movement or bring people to what you want to happen but I also I don't think that Bookchin would this is, again, speculation. And I, I don't want to frame an entire discussion through hypothetical imagination of what I thought Bookchin might think based on the two and a half of his books I've read mm. um, and all the memes I've seen. of <laughs> um, But I, I don't suspect that Bookchin was against storytelling. I don't think that he would be like, oh, S- Star Wars is a distraction from the revolution. He might say... Lists well, only. No story is about why you're voting for Obama. <laughs> I want a list of the characters from Star Wars <laughs> and and what their motivations are. And that's, that's good. Uh, I, th- I think he was very specifically... He, he would be critical of the idea that watching Star Wars and criticizing Star Wars through a political or you know feminist lens or whatever in itself is a political revolution. He was very dedicated to this notion that we have to actually get serious about politics. We have to get serious about the type of world that we want to see. Um, and so I think understanding his opposition to myth or his his in, uh, invocations of myth as like primordial old myths to criticize the present, saying that we're regressing from these higher forms of reason. He, he wasn't saying, oh, J.R.R. Tolkien shouldn't have invented a mythological universe to tell stories in. But he, he might say, if J.R.R. Tolkien did that specifically because he wanted to transition from this mode of society to a higher mode of society, yes, I'm critical of that. That's useless towards our ends. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think what he's being critical of is in pre-enlightenment times before science, before, you know, philosophy got this reboot and people started really thinking deeply about a lot of different things in the past people, when they were building their myths, because myth building is something that we do. It's part of how our brain works. It's how we understand the world. When they were doing that, they didn't have access to science at all. So they were just making shit up and telling these stories. And a lot of the time actually believing that they were true, creating these ideologies, religions around them and punishing people and uh, uh, enforcing them and going to war over them. And I think that's the kind of stuff that he's against, not the actual fact of storytelling on a mass scale in order to like orient people, which I think is a good thing. And Bookchin also thinks is a good thing because it's what he's doing in his <laughs> in his work a lot of the time. Uh, you mentioned the is-ought distinction. Um, and here's something that a quote from Bookchin about that. 
Quote, we're even witnessing a revival of Hume's is ought criticism, which denies speculative thought the right to reason from the what is to the what should be. This positivistic mousetrap is a problem not in logic, but in ethics. Notably, the right of the ethical should be to enjoy an objective status. To remain within the what is in the name of logical consistency is to deny reason the right to assert goals, values, and social relationships that provide a voice to the claims of ecology as a social discipline. So basically, he said, like, is ought, and I don't really care about that. Doesn't make any sense to me. Right. Yeah. When I was just saying, because is ought, this is why, like, he he wants to collapse my idea of mythology into reason. I yeah. think that's what it sounds like from what you're reading out there. Yeah. And, and he, he had this idea of objective ethics that were drawn from nature, which I've, I've seen uh, criticized by a lot of people. And I, I think I get what he's, what he's getting at, which is that, you know, there's more or less objective things we want to try to find. Basically, we want to find the mythological structure in narrative that is closest to reflecting what we know of reality, which seems to be also exactly what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Or at least like be aware when our myths are just Star Wars like stories and be aware when we're trying to tell a myth that matches the the world around us. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I like I agree with Bookchin that there's a real danger in having myths that are completely detached from reality. Myths like in place of the scientific method and yeah, just like I don't think science can replace myths because I think they serve two different functions. I definitely don't think myths can replace science. Yeah, no, Star Wars is a really, really poor map of the <laughs> table of elements. Yeah, yeah. And it's also a poor map of how things sound in space or don't sound like anything <laughs> in space and multiple other incorrect science things. But like, hell, like, it's, a, it's an okay fairy story, isn't it? Like Neil deGrasse Tyson didn't even bother, I think, to criticize the science of star wars because there's no point like he's going to criticize the science of like interstellar or gravity because those movies are trying to be scientific star wars not, not or so no, much he, he did point out that bb8's rolling ball wouldn't work on sand <laughs> okay well he's still i guess he still had to classic tyson <laughs> something <laughs> um actually that's true even like even though it's not science it bothered me in the new movie when they like were gonna jump from i want to say warp but that's star trek what do they call it light when they're speed. going really fast when they're going yeah light speed or even faster than light but it, jumping out of it to normal speed inside of this shield or whatever that was around the planet that had been turned into a death star like thing this is in force awakens um, oh yeah like in yeah I, I just barely remember this but this is starting to piss me off they <laughs> the, the han solo ended light speed within the yeah, atmosphere of a planet yeah by just being like and now <laughs> <laughs> yeah which is like really dumb um but it's okay because it's a fantasy story uh <laughs> but no like no it's not okay a movie that comes out in 2015 shouldn't have the phrase we've got company twice in it. <laughs> Fucking JJ, get your shit together. If you're going to keep me making movies, take that seriously. We've got company can go in a movie once at max and in the modern day, avoid it. Yeah. You could say something like that. It's, just, like it's a weird metaphor, you know, like you're having people over for company 
like that's the joke like that's what it originally came from is like oh these aliens are gonna come and ki- i don't know what movie it started in these it's aliens cliche. are gonna come kill us or whatever and you're like oh we got company like look who's coming for dinner the monsters who want to kill us but then it's just like this is a bit of a tangent but this really pisses me off when movies become like facsimiles of the idea of a movie rather than telling a story and they're just recycling all these fucking tropes from other movies and they're like oh this is this is the time where he says we've got company it's when the bad guys are showing up but like the writer didn't even consider like ah yes we've got company as a metaphor for having people over for company and he's saying it ironically because you don't usually have company coming over that's going to kill you ah yes i'm he's just thinking like oh we've got company it's that thing you say when bad guys show up <laughs> anyways right i yeah. really and hated that it multiple was times within uh, the same movie two times jj <laughs> two times i want to give you the benefit of the doubt jj but two times okay sorry <laughs> Yeah, I just like, I think, I th- okay, I think you can have bad myths because they're not based on science. And you can also have bad myths because they promote bad values and, and orient people in the wrong direction. But there, there's another type of danger to myths that I want to talk about that I think is more relevant to us and our myth building on the left and the history of myth building on the left and the history of utopian myth building specifically. Th- this is something that I feel like we have done completely right. Um, You and I? Yeah, you you and I, which is to recognize that, I'm trying to think of a pithy way to put it. I get it, like part of it is not believing too strongly in it, but but it's more than that. It's understanding that there's a sort of relativity at stake here. Like when we're talking about this future society and like X, Y, and Z are all going to be so much better in this future society, uh, solving all those problems is going to bring with it a whole set of new problems. And like our society by comparison to a society where people are struggling just to get water every day, it sounds utopic, like, oh, you can just turn on the tap and get water at whatever temperature you want, however much you want, for however long you want. <laughs> Out of the mouths of babes. <laughs> if I didn't have to worry about getting water whenever I want it, like, my life would be so easy. Imagine that burden lifted off of you and, like, yeah, I could deal with anything else as long as that was, deal. like, that's... You know how to get that, right? If you want to have water in your house, whatever you want, whatever temperature you want, <laughs> join me and kill the rich. <laughs> Yeah. So the, da- <laughs> the, the, the danger is believing that you can actually create a 100% perfect society and your ideas are the way to get there. And those other people who don't agree with you are in the way. And like anything is just <laughs> and anything is justified to get to your dream. Yeah. Because when you literally believe that right around the corner is the end of all suffering, the end of all hunger. Just like we, if we just did what I think is right. And in this case, it's, you know, torturing bosses. <laughs> people would all, <laughs> no, that that's the means to get there. Like we won't have to torture bosses anymore once we have the perfect society. Right, so, yeah. I mean, I mean, my <laughs> idea for how to get there is to torture bosses and eventually <laughs> if you torture bosses long enough, they'll drop gems. And if you bring all the gems together, it creates communism. <laughs> that's what people, that was the misconception in Soviet Russia, right? Yeah, is that yeah, you need basically. to get gems. <laughs> And that you bring them together, it creates communism. That was the that was the myth they believed in too hard. <laughs> Stalin was a good guy trying to get gems. <laughs> Wait, you wouldn't do anything to get those sweet gems? Those sweet mythical gems that transition to communism? Sorry. Like, yeah, like killing a few million people when you're going to end all needless suffering in like five years 
is a pretty low price to pay, honestly. Like if that was true, it's a pretty low price to pay. And so it's easy to understand why when people believe that, they believe the second part. They believe that it's a pretty low price to pay. So I don't, I don't, like a humbleness, I guess you have to have about a, maybe I'm, I'm wrong about about my specific ideas. Like me, like my, (laughs) like Aaron has a lot of humility. It's one of the reasons he's able to bring forward a better future. Whereas someone who is less humble would be doing less of a good job. Sorry. I don't know. The, the other way I, I was thinking of framing it is to look at social change, not just in terms of what we can gain, but also in terms of what we might lose and to not throw that aside. Be, because I think the Soviet Union, for example, lost a lot uh, <laughs> in terms of both lives and freedoms and and. They lost a lot because they had their eyes on only what they could gain and not and not what it was possible to lose. So, yes, you want a mythology that's going to help you orient in a direction that tells you the future that you're heading towards. And I'm, I'm really in favor of talking about better futures and shooting for them. But always be aware there's going to be more problems. It's not going to be perfect. The specific change that you wish would be implemented right now, may, maybe it's a really good change, but it's it's not worth k- killing millions of people for, <laughs> which sounds like a really obvious thing that you shouldn't have to say. But we just know from the history of humankind that it is the kind of thing that you do have to say and that people need to keep in mind, <laughs> unfortunately. <laughs> Like Nazi Germany had a utopian vision for a society without wars and we're going to improve everyone's genetics and we're going to like to the stars, we're going to like get rid of the bad guys, (laughs) end all disease by weeding out the undesirables and just make everything better. And we're going to have a perfect society and we just got to crack a few eggs to make that omelet. So (laughs) it's, there's a danger there with utopian thinking and with utopian myths, specifically utopian, because that's what gets people to the point where they'll do anything for it. Uh, But I don't think we have to throw away utopias. I think we just have to be aware of that and how we hold those beliefs and how we hold and how we talk about those myths. Yeah. And I I mean, part of me is like, it really, I hate the notion when people are like, well, you know, Hitler had a utopia too, because that type of stuff is so often used to shit on the idea about dreaming about a better future and like trying to actualize a better future. Mm -hmm. But it's like, we need to have like a clear distinction between, you know, the world, uh, the world that we're imagining, the narrative that we're, we're spinning of, of like what the outcome should be. And also our understanding of the present and how to act in it towards that. And I think that's something that, like when you're talking about myth and the Joseph Campbell, more positive way, lessons on how to live your life and and what types of behavior creates the right outcome. They're useful and good. In any place where you have that absence of humanity, like basic humanity, radical decency, treating each other well, treating each other with respect and, and not creating suffering where there is none. Like that needs to be a baseline at the same, like if you, if you have this perfect idea of this perfect future without suffering and you're totally willing to make a bunch of new suffering to get there, I think that's actually kind of in contradiction. Uh, Yeah. So like a lot of this is coming down to what values are you actually promoting in these myths that are vehicles for values? And if the value is achieving the goal at all costs versus the value of 
not versus. So I was, I'm trying to think like, how would you word the value of like completely disregarding the values that I value in order to get the values that I value? Like, it seems like such a silly. It's a mythology uh, of war. It's a mythology of wartime. And yeah. this notion of yeah. winners and losers and, you know, war is hell and we're the right guys. We have the right flag. And so we have to win this war at all costs. Uh, yeah, I think projecting war where there is none and using the war metaphor as framing for your thinking causes some of this stuff. Yeah. And either that's actually like really on point for the Soviet Union too, because I've been reading a lot about it and just like a, a lot of things happened. But one of the things that happened is right after the revolution, they were in civil war for three years, I think, or four years. And they had this quote, war communism, uh, which was, since it was at the very like beginning of the communists, the Bolsheviks holding power in the country, they were in this war communism mode when they were setting up all of the infrastructure of the government. It was set up from that mindset of us versus them, winners versus losers. We have to defeat the white army, blah, 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 blah. But they, they set up all these institutions and myths and things in the frame of war against all enemies, anyone who might possibly oppose us. And those frameworks and things and the legacy of them was a big part of how the Soviet Union took shape over the rest of its time. Um, I don't know. Don't kill. Don't kill millions of people. It's not nice. (laughs) If any of you were considering it, it's not worth it. You don't even get communism in the end. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's... (laughs) That's the real kicker. You don't even get communism. That's the, the mythological lesson of the whole, you know, Soviet Union uh, experience. It's that <laughs> you make all these, you know, it's the story of this well-meaning guy, Lenin, and his little pal, Stalin. <laughs> and what they, they hoped so desperately to rid the world of suffering that they were willing to make wartime compromises. But the lesson at the end, telling your kids at night, they didn't actually get communism and actually they suppressed worker revolts, which is exactly uh, antithetical to the politics they claim to stand for. The end. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Daddy. Uh, yeah. Hi. Dad. Hey, Bill. Some kids at my school today were saying that in Soviet Russia, Stalin caused an intentional genocide called the Holodomor. Holodomor, yeah. Um, It's actually what is that? A little more complicated than that. Well, the Holodomor was it's uh, it's a a Ukrainian word that actually implies an intentional famine. You said an intentional genocide, and uh, all genocides, by definition, are going to be intentional because they mean that you're killing a lot of people on purpose. Wow. what Holodomor was, was a famine uh, in Soviet Russia in the 1930s and uh, in, in in the Soviet Union, sorry, which includes Russia and the Ukraine. While it has been alleged that this was intentionally done, that Stalin wanted to kill Ukrainians uh, and peasants more broadly, part of what Stalin did in the years leading up to this famine was called collectivization uh, of all the peasants' farms. And, and what that meant for Stalin was sending people out to the peasants' farms and taking all of their grain away and bringing it back to the cities to be stored by the state. There those were, some... were, Daddy, um, are those kulaks? 
that is the word that the Soviets used to describe what they called capitalist peasants. So peasants who owned farms large enough to employ other people as farmhands. Um, but according to most of the histories that I've read, the term was applied a lot more broadly than that to basically anyone who they suspected might have grain that they weren't giving up were called kulaks. Long story short, I'm sorry, son, I'm rambling. They took all the peasants' grain, and then there was a bad harvest season, and then they didn't give any of the grain back when they didn't have any food to eat, and so the peasants starved. So was it intentional? I mean, they intentionally didn't give the food back because they felt like they had better things to do with it. They needed to use it for export in order to import uh, machinery for industrialization to complete Stalin's five-year plan. I don't think he was trying to kill people. I just think he didn't try to keep them alive, if that if that makes sense. So he wasn't evil. He was incompetent. Yeah, that's a, that's a really interesting question because Stalin did a lot of things that one might call evil. There was a lot of party purging, removing enemies, suppressing worker revolts, although that was probably before Stalin's time, a lot of that. Because you, you see, son, the, the Soviet Union is an interesting thing because they, they, they claim to be communist. Uh, they claim to be Marxist, specifically Marxist-Leninist. But if you look at Marxist literature if you if you look at marx himself in capital he described that you could only get to communism you can only get to socialism once your country once the world has passed through a bourgeois capitalist phase and one of lenin's contributions to the ideology of marxist leninism what makes it leninist one of those things was the idea that that wasn't necessary because russia had never had never been a bourgeois capitalist state. They skipped that part. Uh, there was civil war. They had war communism. They set up their party as the legislative making body without any real democratic control over the policy. And it spun out of control really quickly, son. But the important thing to remember is that this isn't an indictment of Marxism because Marxism recognized that you can't have communism until the material conditions are ripe. And the material conditions weren't ripe in Soviet Russia. They, they haven't been ripe anywhere in the world yet, to be honest with you, son. That's why true communism has never existed in any country in the world, mm. um, except for primitive communism, which is a different thing. In order to have true communism, you have to go fully through the bourgeois capitalist phase. Mm. Uh, and when you're going through a whole historical phase, that takes a long time. That takes hundreds of years. And we need to go through bourgeois democratic capitalism to the point where we have an abundance of goods. And once we have an abundance of goods, then we can really, really bring about communism. And we're, we're getting there, son. You know, so much advancement is happening in automation and technology. And so Marx wasn't wrong. Lenin was wrong. And... We just need to, it's called left accelerationism, son. It means that we need to put all of our effort into developing more and more technology that liberates people from work and creates the material goods we all need to live. And then we will 
arrive at a Marxist utopia when the material conditions allow for it. So Stalin, Stalin and Lenin weren't dialectical enough? Exactly. So <laughs> totally correct. <laughs> So yeah, I think we have to hold our myths kind of lightly. I think I think it's a little more specific than that. The way the way I'm currently thinking about it is not not just being humble about it, not just being light about it. It's that because of the 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 place that we are in history now is that we have access to comparative mythology or we we've talked about access to ideology before we we just have a shit ton of information and we know about all the different myths we know about we know a lot about history and we know a lot about different religious belief systems and we know about science and we're in this completely new historical moment and the risk there is that with so much information we might start to drown but Aaron and I We've got a, an alternative. Yeah. We call it swimming or <laughs> surfing or getting on a boat. Yeah, yeah. like Or a submarine. Going with my framing of myths as orienting things and, and your marine metaphors here. Or genetically modifying <laughs> yourself to have gills. <laughs> to only have a bunch of facts and to not have any, any story you're telling yourself about them, any orienting narrative there's there's a real danger of collapsing into nihilism and i think nihilism is a modern phenomena for the most part like people who live in societies with a strong religious narrative and they they just know what the truth is they know that the tribal shaman has contact with the spirit worlds and like when you know that your myth is true you're at very little risk for nihilism but when you have access to all this other different information and it's just like this huge jumble and like what's even true and what's not and you're ready to just give up and not care anymore that's when nihilism comes about and that's what like nietzsche's god is dead thing was about he was saying we killed god and now we're vulnerable to nihilism because we don't have any values anymore. So this is why I think we need mythologies in the modern day and why I think it's necessary for us to understand the mythologies as a meta myth. Like I think what we're talking about now, mythologies and the need for them and how important they are to us because of our psychology, because of the way they speak to these common human experiences that we all share is meta mythology or comparative mythology it is the story that we're telling ourselves about stories and knowing that when we talk about myths believe in myths it's creating them while knowing that that's what we're doing we're creating myths it's not just the truth that was brought to us down from on high from god it's no, we're creating a story in order to orient ourselves, to express values, and to create community. This all has to be done consciously now because we don't have the luxury of dogmatically believing in a specific myth, which is really good because it, again, reduces the dogma, reduces the potential for the millions of people dead, but it's bad because it leaves people vulnerable to nihilism. And I, so I think the solution to that is this meta-myth idea. It's, ba it's basically the meta-modernist idea as well. The meta-modernist response to post-modernism is 
postmodernism deconstructs everything, shows how everything's a social construct and like, okay, yes, that's great. But then what do you do? You need to build new narratives. And the only way to build new narratives once it's all been collapsed in that way is to do it consciously and to know that that's what you're doing. So uh, Joseph Campbell, who wrote um, The Power of Myth, he's kind of a famous mythologist, uh, spread this idea of the the monomyth and the idea that um, Star Wars was a mythology, like this really great mythology um, and gives examples of uh, different storytelling lessons in it and, and stuff like that. Um, he said that myth serves four functions. So if we're getting into a meta myth mode, that is we're consciously creating myths to further our kind of social, political and ethical goals. There's four things that, that we need to be aware of, according to Joseph Campbell, at least. The first is the mystical function. Um, so that's realizing what a wonder the universe it is, what a wonder it is to be alive, to be a human being and, and having awe for like the mystery of the universe and your relationship to the overall universe. So like when you look up at the stars at night and you feel really small and but also kind of inspired by just the huge amount of stuff that you could never know. But also it's inspiring to know how much we do know. And I think this is something that Bookchin would definitely agree in is that how far humans have come so far as far as the fact that we know that we live on a globe earth that we know that we live um, in a solar system with all these other uh, planets like for example jupiter and what the features of jupiter are like it's really quite incredible that as a child i knew that because we pass on information as a group um, and so like the peaks of human knowledge the peaks of human exploration are passed on to even the children in our society and that's really quite impressive yeah yeah it's about like facing the unknown and when we're telling our stories about facing the unknown and our place within this giant universe that we know so little about we have so much success to talk about because we've faced so much and conquered so many things that seemed like it would be impossible to know like if i go outside and look at the sky i'm no fucking idea how anyone figured anything out about Jupiter. Like, it just looks like one of the stars. Like, all of the planets just look like the other stars, basically. But somehow, with fucking telescopes and whatever, calculate these science people, they figured some shit out. <laughs> they know how it has rings. We have pictures of it. We have telescopes in the... Like, we've... we've the unknown is potentially infinite. There's potentially infinite amount of information that we don't know. Maybe not. Maybe it's some huge finite number, but either way, th there's a lot there, but we still have compared to what we knew 400 years ago. What we know now is what, what's that word? Magnet orders of magnitude larger. It's, it's not just like we know a little bit more. We know so much more uh, like <laughs> exponentially more. Um, so the second function of myth, according to Joseph Campbell, is the cosmological dimension, the dimension in which science is concerned with. So showing what the shape of the universe is, but in a way that that connects to the awe and the wonder of the, of the first purpose. Mm -hmm. So Joseph Campbell agrees that there is a scientific, relatively objective element to ideal myth making, that it connects to reality, that it, it has that connection to the shape of the universe and the shape of our relations to each other. Uh, the third is a sociological one that is supporting and validating a certain social order. And he says that this act this function, the function of myth to validate social order is the conception of myth that has taken over our society's conception of myth. And so a lot of people, like I think Bookchin might think of myth as justifying what the order was at the time mm -hmm. rather than being a... Um, 
an evolutionary kind of dialectical process towards higher levels of myth that create better societies. And then the the final function of myth, the fourth, and he emphasizes, this is the one I think everyone must try to relate to. Uh, that is the pedagogical function. That is how to live a human lifetime under any circumstances. What are the moral lessons? What are the virtuous conceptual lessons that you can take into your personal life as a human being, even ideally in the far future, when our conceptions of the cosmological order have changed and been grown and, and bigger and bigger, what are the lessons about our relationship to each other and what it means to be a human that are still going to have resonance that are still going to be important then? Yeah. Like you're still going to face challenges. You're still going to have conflicts with other people. You're still going to experience despair and sadness and happiness and joy at achieving your goals. Like all of these things are part of the structure of our experience. They're not, part, they're, they're, they're not specific to any given society and lessons on how to face those things, how to face the future are timeless and necessary for, yeah, the ped pedagogical, for te teaching kids to go out there and face the world and win, as Donald <laughs> Trump would put it. We want to create winners. Win big. Win, win big. Big league. Yeah. <laughs> big league. Big league. <laughs> so uh, as the final answer to our, our great caller's question, yes, we do support mythology building. We think it's a good thing for communities, especially relevantly our community uh, as, as leftists to create stories that help us to communicate our values to people and help us to orient ourselves towards a better, a better tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> Looking for a better tomorrow. And I think with we were mentioning about how much we know now that we didn't know even 50 years ago. But even a week ago, I didn't know that about 40 light years away from us, there is a red dwarf planet that has seven Earth-like planets within the Goldilocks zone, which has just been announced by NASA. All, like, all circling the same star? Yes. Yeah. You didn't hear about this? I saw you mention this somewhere else, but I didn't read about it or anything, no. Yeah, so like NASA announced, it was either yesterday or the day before, that based on their calculations, there's a really, one of the closest stars to us, I mean, it's still immeasurably far away. I mean, not me measurably, but un unimaginably, that's what I meant to say. Yeah, yeah, the, like some of the closest stars are still hundreds of light years. Of the, I'm, I'm going to get all numbers wrong. So <laughs> this that, this particular star is 40 light years away, which um, would take like 16,000 years to get to in our fastest mm. spacecraft thus far. But uh, based on their calculations and what they've been able to tell about the planet circling this, they believe there are seven Earth-like planets and it's Goldilocks zone, which is a really big deal because it, it's um, it's close, which means it's easier to study and, and do stuff about than further away. And there's also like seven of them, which is another big deal. And hearing about this really, really connected me with the wonder of the universe. And like, there's there's a part of my brain that believes in space utopia, believes in technology utopia, space socialism, this perfect futuristic society, and clicks into this kind of science fiction inspiration that I've had uh, since a small child when thinking about space. Because mm -hmm. there's so much of it and it's so vast and you can project so many possibilities out into it. Like when you tell me about these seven planets, I'm just like, 
first of all, thinking, oh, well, like, that's great. That would be a great place to live, you know, to like here we only have one planet <laughs> and there there's seven that would be possible to live on. And then I'm also wondering, like, I wonder if there's already like some some beings there and if any of them have already achieved space socialism with their seven planets. Like it's it's really fun to oh, imagine. Get this. These planets, they pass close enough to each other that you can sometimes see one of the other seven planets from the surface of another planet mm -hmm, and right. it would be bigger than the moon and you'd be able to see features of the planet like for example mountains and oceans as it passes by your planet oh that would be so cool <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so i think if we're talking about a a leftist mythology that that grounds us in in the different aspects of mythology that joseph campbell acknowledges as parts of the parts of the overall picture i think incorporating heavily incorporating space travel exploration and just the open-endedness of space and technology is an essential part of it yeah that's like where you're going to get that awe that's where you're going to get that facing of the unknown like we 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 have a pretty good idea what's on the earth there's some stuff way down deep in the oceans we haven't uh explored yet the earth actually is hollow and <laughs> there's beings that live down there but we don't know much about that yet it's a, it's a joke but <laughs> space is so big so vast and there's so much potential there that like that's where you're going to get that awe of there's this huge universe and there's so much to explore and do and achieve so i, I almost want to say like if we're building this myth and we want to connect the mystery of the universe, the order of the universe, the social order that we wish to see, and also how to act in day to day within this narrative of space socialism. Yeah. Uh, taking a page from Bookchin here would be useful because Bookchin is one of the, one of my favorite leftist theorists I can think of who's really, really emphasized what makes human beings special. Anti-misanthropy has been a theme through our podcast since since Square One. Even mm -hmm. I think there's really an objective scientific justification of anti-misanthropy. We're a really interesting species. Doesn't mean that we're we hierarchically have the right to order other species around or something necessarily. Our faculties are really advanced. And if there's any species on Earth that is capable of figuring out there are seven Earth-like planets 40 light years away, that's human beings. Sorry, horses. Sorry, flies. Sorry, dolphins. We know you're really smart, but I don't think dolphins figured that out. Hey, I dogs, just don't. you're cute, but you're never, ever going to figure out this shit unless we figure out a way to talk to you and figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> uh, unless they're working on it. Maybe there's like secret dog scientists inside the hollow earth. And I don't know. Self-esteem for humans, but like as a group can be based on the idea that if anyone can figure this shit out, it's us. And if anyone can get out there, it's us. And it's our job, it's our duty to get there. The way that we could get there, the way that we could get around the universe and understand, uh, push the frontiers of frontiers and find new horizons beyond our wildest horizons. It's not through fighting each other. It's through working together. Yeah, that, that was the thing that I've just been on the tip of my tongue for a, a few minutes here is that one of the major benefits of space uh, ideation, of, of the idea of going to space is that it puts us in a context where we're all earthlings together venturing out into the stars and not Americans or Canadians or Europeans or African. It's jumped from countries to continents there. We're, we're not these individual groups based on whatever 
divisions we have against one another. We are groups together out going out into space and exploring. This is the Star Trek idea uh, where in the Star Trek universe, society on Earth and within the Federation is this perfect communist moneyless utopia where you just use replicators, you can get whatever you want, you can do whatever kind of jobs you want, you'll be taken care of, you're fine. But when you're out in the stars dealing with other people who aren't part of your Federation, yeah, there's still war, there's still trade, there's still those things because there's so much out there. But that that's how humanity comes together in the Star Trek mythology. And, and I think in actual uh, likelihood of the future of, of humanity, how we're going to come together is by going out away from Earth. That makes the entire Earth seem like home and all the people here seem like our family. You're going from this conception of like, oh, we're this big thing, America, and we're fighting this other big thing, China, and this other big thing, Russia, and all that stuff. And then when you take it into the the space perspective, all of a sudden, all those big things, you realize how small they are. And instead of being these big things that are in conflict with each other, we're this very, very small thing that is together against this much, much bigger thing, bigger than we could ever imagine. Yeah. Yeah. So much bigger. Like <laughs> there's seven planets in the Goldilocks zone of a star that's only 40 light years away, which is so close uh, in terms of how big the actual universe is. 40 light years away with, with the fastest space travel we've ever managed would take like from the beginning of human beings existing on planet Earth to now. If we got the fastest spaceship that we ever made and made it now and then made it function at full capacity for its entire life cycle, it would have to travel for the duration of the time that human beings have existed to get to these planets. And that's a close star. Yeah. <laughs> there is such huge challenges and such, such huge opportunities for us to overcome and to meet those challenges. And to get down to the, the pedagogical level, like in, in, in an interhuman basis like what's how does this connect to how we treat each other so we've talked about the society that we want to see we've talked about the universe as we understand and we've talked about the mysteries that we hope to unveil together on an individual level i think what we really need to start embracing and i think the 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 skeleton key that opens up this world of possibility is learning to embrace the autonomous individual embracing that every human being is special Every human being has something to offer. And if, and if every human being is working along the lines of what they're drawn to, to work to and what they care about, and we, we, we all give each other space if, if we uh, follow uh, in the teachings of uh, the based God, um, a little b. Being based um, is a misconception. You know, some people think being based is just doing whatever you want, no matter what other people think. So then you hear stupid shit like, oh, Donald Trump is so based. That's not true. That's not what based means. You ask the base God. Base God has defined based. Being based is not just doing what you want, no matter what other people think, although that is part of it. It's doing what you want, being yourself, but also within that, allowing other people to be themselves. So the reason Donald Trump isn't based is because his very political project is based on limiting spontaneity and freedom and others. So he can never be based. The way to get to space is to be based. To be yourself and to encourage others to be themselves, to recognize that. Uh, and like, I, I feel like this is a an enlightenment idea that in <laughs> individuals are almost sacred in a sense. I, I, that's probably not an enlightenment idea to phrase it that way, but the idea that each and every person 
has these hu- human rights that we hold to be self-evident, blah, 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 that, that every single person is worth something. If we want to achieve these great things, we need everybody on board. And we're not going to achieve all these great things if we're sitting here trying to oppress each other or repress each other. We need, we need to give space for, just like uh, Papa Bookchin advised us so many years ago, we need to embrace our knowledge of the potentiality within all human beings to their highest forms of morality and rationality and find ways to bring about that high level of rationality and morality in every person. Oh, yeah. And I think, I think part of that, part of achieving the highest value um, of each and every individual human being is like to recognize that we all paradoxically contain the potential for darkness and to defeat that within ourselves, to not just project that evil out onto the world and to on other people and to realize that it is within people, the the potential for good and bad is within us. And so when we're directing ourselves towards this future, towards this good, to always keep that in mind because you don't want it to turn rotten <laughs> in in ways that, that have happened in the history. You, you, Harry Potter has the scar from Voldemort on him. And he has a little piece of Voldemort in him. He has the evil in him. Luke Skywalker is just like his dad in that he has the potential to turn to the dark side. Everybody has that potential. And and the thing that myths and stories teach us is how to be strong and how to not succumb to those, I don't want to say temptations, because I don't even think they are temptations for most people, but those tricks to, to be, to, to fall into those traps. Part of achieving great, amazing future is to not be evil about it <laughs> when, <laughs> when trying to get to it and to defeat the demons within yourself. And if you have this false idea of yourself as a pure and virtuous person who would never do any wrong. It's the bad guys who do wrong. I'm a good guy. Everyone on my team with my flag, we would only do right. If you submit to that mythology, if you submit to that ideological premise, you're capable of great evil without realizing it. I don't think it's a stretch to say that over the last couple of years, we've been seeing in the political realm how much that blind assumption that you're on the right side of history can lead people to doing things that are completely ridiculous and stupid and violent and damaging and damage the causes they speak for and damages the people that they want to help. Um, and it comes from this place of the the lack of awareness, the lack of meta mythology, the lack of being in touch with the fact that we have the potential of both good and evil and not just evil, but it, 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 good in the wrong way or good in a way that doesn't end up working or like in the mythology of Bookchin, he was right about so many of the fights that he got into. And it's it's hard for me to say that he shouldn't have got into those fights. It's, it's just what happened. Mm. Um, but at the same time, would his ideas be more common sense now if he had found more productive ways of expressing them than by framing them in terms of like this is one of my favorite things about Bookchin. It's so funny. Is anytime he has a really good idea, he'll always open by saying, unlike those idiots who think this totally <laughs> horrible thing, I realize. And then he says the thing that's true. And like, and you got to give credit. He's right. Right. But opening with being like, unlike that fucking idiot moron, 
I know what's up. It's like you've 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 tainted the whole discussion, and that's one of the kind of uh, lessons that I take from my studying of Bookchin. Right, right, for sure. Yeah, the like doing good. Um, versus not necessarily evil, but good in the wrong way. It turns evil. Like the, I don't know if I have this very well because I don't, I haven't read Hannah Arendt. But the phrase, the banality of evil, I know is something that comes from Hannah Arendt, and I think it's very applicable in this situation. In terms of a lot of the worst things that have happened aren't from people cackling and tenting their fingers together. And um, <laughs> although we have more and more of those on our hands, it seems. <laughs> yeah, those people exist um, to some degree, but for the most part, it comes from people trying to do good. And but 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 this doesn't mean don't try to do good. This doesn't mean don't try to create a better future. It just means be aware that that pitfall is there. That that you might trip and fall into that abyss and then watch where you're stepping and don't do it. Don't trip and fall into that abyss <laughs> because the answer to the potential of evil is not inaction and nihilism. The answer is heroism and virtue. <laughs> I, I, I don't usually wor use words like that, but like we're talking mytho mythologically. So do what's right and really listen to your heart. <laughs> like I think, I think if like the enforcers um, of horrible Nazi genocide policies were listening to their heart. I'm sure many of them were and knew that what they were doing was wrong, but but I really doubt that you can listen to your heart and just be like, yeah, this is great. This is, this is totally the right thing to do. Um, this, is, this is my truth. This is <laughs> a beautiful thing. I think you have to be like up in your head in a way that you are disconnected from your soul. <laughs> for a lack of a better word in mythological terms like your truest kind of expression of of um who you were to your parents when you were a baby the, the, the hero inside of you the potential for the best version of you so <laughs> this has been the seriously wrong podcast thank you so much for joining us today um, um if you have any thoughts on this episode, if you want to ask us a question that will maybe turn into an episode or maybe answer within the context of a more variety kind of episode, as Sean mentioned at the beginning, go to our website. There's a contact form there. You can also send us an email message and we might uh, do an episode about that then, but we just love those voice messages. Yeah, just... the voice, it really kicks us into action because it's a little bit of audio content. It frames it's just, it, it works better for the storytelling we're doing, honestly, if you could mm. use the, the voice function. Yeah. Um, but we appreciate all the, the emails that we get as well. Um, and also, I just specifically thank you, Ryan, for this question, because, um, you know, I thought I knew the answer of it before I started trying to answer it. And the more I answered it, the more I discovered about what I thought and greatly appreciated question. Yeah. As soon as we got it, we were like, oh, that's a great question. Like, maybe we should do this very soon. And it worked really well in terms of I was already thinking about these things and reading about these things specifically before you asked it. So great timing. If you like the show, another thing you can do is like show it to other people show it to your friends say hey this is a great wait, podcast wait, wait, wait let's do this as like a a story like bringing them into like, okay. tell a little bit ourselves right. why we do what we do so we're going to demonstrate a little bit about how the power of storytelling here so bear with us so so we first started 2014 um, yeah 2014 april may i think so yeah. uh, march maybe even because we like to engage with people. We like to put things out there and get feedback. Um, it's, it's a passion of ours to do these kinds of creative 
adventures and podcasting seemed like an eminently achievable one. And then it was, we, we did it. We've made podcasts. I was feeling like, and I had these mixed feelings, like the world of discourse, the world of discussions that we were having on, on Facebook and other things, there was this weird kind of stilted nature to it. And I was feeling like I was encountering more and more inhumanity in comment sections. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it's a cliche by now. Um, and I'm sure it was then also, but it was getting more and more on my nerves, like that there wasn't this level of basic humanity and decency that we treated other people with and that there wasn't an honest attempt to better understand. Usually there was a lot of putting out a position and then defending it as, as if it's part of you and this type of stuff. Meeting Aaron and getting acquainted with Aaron was kind of a, a it, was, it was a really positive thing in that I felt like I met someone who was on the same page in a way like, and that that you were like earnestly interested in better understanding the world and treating other people decently. Yeah. There, there was a really interesting, like coming together of these two like perspectives that we had and creating something new out of them that, that I think transcended both of them individually. Uh, and like, that's been the story of this whole podcast. Like we came together, um, connecting on those values that you're talking about, like especially human decency, especially listening to other people in arguments, valuing that maybe your opponents have something to teach you, valuing that other people generally mean well and that it's possible to communicate well and to that discourse is useful, that things aren't hopeless that a better future is possible. These are all like values that we shared that have been foundational to the podcast throughout it and that have shaped the conversations we've had for almost three years now. And it's, yeah, it's been such a, a process of discovery in both kind of playing our ideas off of each other and finding these places where there's these differences and then we're able to find out ways that our differences are actually the same thing in different poses that sometimes there just is differences but then they are pretty meaningless compared to like our massive agreements or yeah or then that sometimes there's tensions between two positions that are okay and it's okay to let the tension be and that not everything would be boring and and not good if everyone just agreed on everything. So sometimes there needs to be these vital, sometimes vital balances need to be struck between two opposing positions. And it's not just the middle position. It's, it's not just finding some golden mean. It's oscillation. It's both and instead of either or. Yeah, so, so much stuff like that. And then so we start putting this podcast out in the world and sharing it with people. And then we get like obviously mixed feedback there's <laughs> some people don't like what we do but we've received some really positive feedback people saying like oh i renounced nihilism because of listening to you it's literally feedback we got or this episode changed the way i look at this or you've you've helped in one way or another give me hope that there are people out there who think like me and that the future can be a better place and that's really meaningful to me and i really care that i was able to have that effect and this is your opportunity to be a part of that <laughs> by um, using the contact form on our website or if you really, really want to help and you want to make a really big difference to the amount of reach we can have with these ideas, the best and easiest thing for you is to send us a donation. It makes a huge difference to us being able to propagate this stuff and we appreciate it greatly. 
Yeah, because we both have to work real jobs and like it's a lot of work doing a podcast, especially putting one out every week. <laughs> like try it, like try recording something with your friends for like two, three hours and then like doing some sketches and everything and then trying to edit all down into one product uh, and how many hours that takes you and then do it again the next week after and do it again the next week after. And I'm not like complaining because we love doing it. But yeah, it's it, it one just, of the joys just, of our lives to yeah, do this. It, it's amazing. And I love the feedback and I love everything about it. But like just the reality is that it takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of work. And in this society that we currently live in, we need money to exist. And so <laughs> anything that you can send really helps solidify this as something that we can keep doing realistically that we're not going to burn out on that we're making just makes it realistically possible to keep going thanks for listening again and uh <laughs> yeah thanks for listening and and if you don't want to send money still too like share it with your friends share it on facebook like this this is also really really great and i understand people don't have money all the time i don't always have money to donate to things i like Donating's great. We have a Patreon. There's bonus content for people who do donate, but also just share things, leave reviews, post us in forums, post us in comment sections, spend an hour spamming us on a few places. And so, so grateful for that. This has been the Seriously Wrong Podcast. You are amazing. I'm wrong. You're wrong. She's wrong. He's wrong. I'm wrong. Welcome to Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater. Uh, things are getting worse and worse. Honestly, I'm just getting tired of this shit. I want to give up. There's no hope. We should give up. The world is just a pile of... It's a big crap hole. The world's turned into a big old crap hole. Aw, oh, come on. You can't give up hope, man. You know things always look darkest just before the dawn and this right now what you're facing this is the monster that you have to slay in order to be the hero that i know that you can be so like you're never going to fulfill your destiny by sitting around being hopeless we're never going to make the world better that way you know it's like hope is the only way to make the world a better place well, this blind hope that you want is not how to make a world a better place. I mean, look, we're in a situation where, uh, you know, the sea levels are going to be rising. We just elected a proto-fascist as the president of the United States. The, you know, there's a rise of far-right nationalist movements around the world. Things are getting worse and worse. And I'm not going to sugarcoat that. I'm not going to put on a false veneer of hope and pretend that the world is, oh, the world is okay. Yeah, just don't look away from the look away from the uh, Dakota Access Pipeline camp they just shut down just look away from it look away that's yeah let's be hopeful and look away from the horrors of the world you're right 
Oh, no, no, no. You misunderstand. We don't have to look away from anything. In fact, that's that's the exact opposite. Hopelessness makes us want to look away. We need to look these things right in the face. We need to face the darkest demons that exist in the world. All these things you're talking about and more. There's There's so many so many things in the world right now that need to be fixed. And if we can look them in the eye, each one of those horrible, awful things you mentioned and everything else, and just say, I can defeat you, we can defeat you, that's going to be what brings the change. Not naive hopelessness, but a realistic look at the situation and resolve to do what's right. There's nothing more useless than hopelessness. Nothing. Well, I mean, okay, just as a thought experiment, let's say that you're in a situation where it's impossible to change something, right? Assume for the sake of discussion that you're completely powerless. So then having hope in that situation uh, that you can change the things is going to be a false, a futile hope, a painful hope that destroys you, that eats you out from the inside and and makes you crumble away into a, a mess of a man, a, a shell of what you formerly were. That's why I think what you're advocating for is uh, just hopelessly naive. You know who was in a situation that looked like they were absolutely powerless to do anything? Luke Skywalker. You know who looked like they were in a situation where they were absolutely powerless to do anything? Harry Potter. Every single person who ever went on a journey and defeated evil had to do so against enormous odds. And yes, we're against enormous odds because that's how reality works. That's how the story plays out. But it means nothing to slay the dragon if the dragon isn't difficult to slay. If it doesn't seem like you're powerless, you're not powerless, you're never powerless, your thought experiment is invalid, there's always, always a lever you can push. There's something you can do. Know who is a fictional character? Luke Skywalker. Know who is a fictional character? Harry Potter. You know what I'm noticing here about all these anecdotes that you're giving about all these wonderful things that happened? They're all stories for children. Just like hope. Hope is a story for children. And you're trying to infantilize me by lowering me to its level. I don't even see the point in trying to convince you. This is this conversation is just hopeless. Don't be hopeless. I'm not hopeless. I think this conversation, you know, there's there's a chance that we can learn a lot from each other. And I think you specifically have something to learn from me. And, you know, saying that Harry Potter isn't real, saying that Luke Skywalker isn't real, that's just not true. Harry Potter is real. It's just that we don't really know about it because we're muggles and we don't have magic. And so, like, those things are happening in this sort of, like, side world. And it's like, you got to read the books. But, like, it's it's not out in the open the whole magic scene it's kind of off to the side it's something that you know we don't really see but it's real it's trust me it's real i read i read the books so there there is hope there's definitely hope what you 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 literally think that 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 harry potter is real man you're gullible i bet you think we live on a globular earth don't you hashtag flat earth truth uh, why, yes, I do. I do think we live on a globe Earth. Um, all, all the science seems to point to it, and there's nothing in Harry Potter that contradicts it. So, if, if you watch the Star Wars movies, every single planet is is spheroid shaped. So, so the idea that our planet would be flat is just com- completely ahistorical, according to the accounts that I've seen. Star Wars and Harry Potter. 
This is such a great example of why it's hopeless to try to talk to someone like you. Your best evidence that we don't live on a flat earth is Star Wars. Okay, how about this? Look at it this way. Have you ever seen the earth from space? Or is that something photoshopped by NASA to keep their budget high? Think about it. I'm going to research some of this flat earth stuff just, just to be sure and keep an open mind. I don't want to reject anything out of hand. And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.